Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by columnist editorial board member Carrie Clack, business editor Greg Jefferson, city hall reporter Megan Stringer. Recording this on Monday, April 11th, we've got a couple of big elections coming up, and I think there's been a lot of focus on the the party runoffs that we have, which uh, that election date is is May 24th, and uh, but. I think there probably needs to be more attention paid uh, to um, another really big election that we've got coming up, which includes the um, city bond uh, election. And that's happening May 7th. Early voting begins in two weeks on April 25th. And uh, Megan, who covers City Hall for us, has has been really looking into the bond program. This is the, the biggest bond program in the city's history, 1.2 billion. It's more than double what we saw just as recently as 10 years ago. And the voters are gonna have six propositions uh, to vote on. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. When you, when you look at this bond program, um, what stands out to you? What, what, is, uh, what strikes you as kind of unique about, about the, the bond program this time around? Yeah, so for the first time, one of the propositions will be $150 million for affordable housing. And in the 2017 bond, there was sort of a, a roundabout way that some money was sent toward affordable housing. But this is the first time that um, the money will directly fund affordable housing projects. So if that proposition is approved, projects still have to come back to city council for approval. But that is sort of unique in that it's the first time that a city bond has been able to directly fund affordable housing projects like this. Uh, it's also unique just in terms of the sheer number of road and infrastructure projects. There was a big push on city council to not have one centerpiece project uh, as there was in 2017 with Broadway and with the land bridge at Phil Hartberger Park. Um, so there's really uh, more streets and drainage and, and essential infrastructure in this while at the same time still funding um, new miles of the linear quickway trails. And you've got more than a hundred million, I think, for for fail streets. I think it, you know, it breaks down to about ten million per district. I think I think each district uh, under the the bond program would would get somewhere between seven and twelve million for fail streets. It, it, it seemed like this um, was a big topic of conversation, you know, as in the the early days of kind of shaping the the bond program that that you heard particularly from council members like Terry Castillo on the west side in District Five about you know the need for the city to address. Um, just all the all the failed streets that we have. I mean, do you think that's that's kind of what we're seeing with this this funding for for, um, for failed streets is kind of the result of some of the discussions that the council had. Yes. So with the failed streets, um, there was a big conversation around the funding formula, how much should go to failed streets based on the percentage of miles in a district and. Um, the bond committees last fall that were making the decisions ended up keeping the existing funding formula for F streets, um, which uh, upset a couple of council members, District 2 Councilman Jalen McKee Rodriguez and uh, District 5 Councilwoman Terry Castillo, who wanted to switch up that funding formula. So the bond program will... Um, will keep the same formula that, that's existing. And those two council members had argued that it's not equitable because their districts have some of the higher amounts of um, failing streets in the city, just streets that get the worst grade for, for being in the worst condition. Um, but there, 
that that bond discussion did impact um, F Street funding moving forward. And there are plans uh, in the city's budget to sort of change up the funding formula to instead base the funding on the number of miles in a district uh, in their eyes that it will be more equitable. So that change did not come about in the, the bond program, but it is on its way possibly in the budget. You talked about how this was really a new step for the city in dealing with affordable housing, the scale uh, of this. And um, as you said, there really aren't specific projects within this uh, $150 million bond um, package. It's, you know, there will be projects that will go before the council, individual projects along along the way. Um, And as I understand it, this will allow for the city to actually provide funding to developers to, to de- develop, you know, housing, housing projects in the, in, in the city. Is that right? Uh, partially, yes. Yeah. That, so the, the housing bond committee has recommended certain funding amounts for different categories. So part of that is, um, you know, affordable housing developers may come to the city with plans for new construction, something of that sort. And um, the city council could approve those projects as they come. But other funding in that $150 million for the bond is set aside for things like affordable housing preservation. And so some of those funds might go toward existing city rehab programs or um, or other things like that. So um, not all of it is is directly funding new affordable housing, but a chunk mm-hmm. of it will. So that's new. Megan, I had a question uh, specifically about one of the funding categories uh, with, with affordable housing, and it, number one, actually. And where it reads, home ownership, rehabilitation, and preservation to include minor repair and remediation of code violations with a priority for homes at risk for demolition for households, da, da, da. I'm still trying to understand that sentence because it it says minor repair with the priority going to homes that are at risk for demolition. And and in my mind, homes that are at risk for demolition need more than minor repair. Do you know anything about that specifically? That's a good question. I'm, I'm trying to think. So so my understanding of what the, the bond committee and putting that language in their recommendations, and, and this was all happening around the time that this ousted report had come out from UT Austin and everyone was talking about demolitions in the city and mm-hmm. code enforcement. And the bond committee, they really wanted to make sure that there was a focus on this money going toward those most vulnerable, those who are, who are most likely to be displaced are receiving assistance from the bond program. Um, my guess would be that by including minor repairs, they, they don't want to exclude anyone automatically okay. based on that language. I'm not 100% sure about that, though. Okay. Megan, do we have any idea how uh, the city would work with developers to actually you know, channel some of this bond financing to projects they're working on? What do you mean by that question exactly? Well, I mean, part of the money will will go to the actual construction of of affordable housing. I mean, are they talking about the city buying land and preparing it for development, or are they talking about some other means of no? Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that there are any plans for the city to buy land and prepare it for development. This is more so the hundred and fifty million to facilitate, mm-hmm. uh, to encourage, to incentivize existing 
affordable housing development plans. So mm-hmm. whereas in 2017, the city had this, this neighborhoods improvement program in which it looked at, um, mm-hmm. at buying up some land, that was a part of 2017, not, not this year. Okay. Megan, I want to ask you a little bit about for, for, for people who are listening in who maybe aren't familiar with how the process works. Um, as you, you pointed out, the city has uh, uh, bond committees who sort of work in putting together the packages. Um, how, how, how much detail is, is involved in, in that? I mean, when, when the, the city council sort of, uh, you know, they, they had discussions about, about the, uh, the, the scale of the bond program months ago. How, how much leeway do the the bond committees have when it comes to picking out certain projects you've got some of you know in in some of these cases with some of these individual uh, propositions you know you'll have 80 projects or 60 projects how uh how detailed does that work when it comes to the the bond committees and, and, and the work that they do Sure. That's a great question. So what we hear a lot from the city and elected officials is about how open and transparent this process is, having residents on the bond committees who are acting as the oversight, the review to select or remove projects. But I know there are people on the bond committees who felt that they did not have as much uh, control over Mm -hmm. what projects are included as they might like and argue that the timeline is just so short and the projects are so plentiful that there's only so much you can do. Uh, and th- this conversation came up in particular on the drainage bond committee for the drainage proposition on the ballot. And those committee members felt as if the list uh, that is handed to them of proposed drainage projects by city staff, that there's just not much time to really dig into it and hear from all of the residents and say, we should remove this project, we mm-hmm. should add this project. No one really wants to be removing drainage projects, of sure. course, but there are so many that that people want to add. So, um, so there was, in particular, in that committee and and others as well, was a big discussion about just the lack of time over the course of about two months and and four or five meetings each of the committees had to to sort of whittle down. And many went over their allotted time, just feeling that they needed um, a more rigorous review process. You know, you. Uh- People who follow the bond over the years know that historically it's the the bond propositions, you know, have passed with overwhelming support. I think the last time around they were all, they all got uh, 70% or better in, in that range. Um, but you've written about the fact that John Austin, who's the chairman of the Bear County Republican Party and who's facing a, a, a Republican Party runoff himself, um, has been actively opposing um, the bond propositions. What is his big um, complaint when it comes to to the bond? Yes. Yeah, so Austin's complaint and some of the other, the same complaint from some of the other lead- leaders in the Bear County Republican Party is just that um, residents, homeowners in particular, dealing with rising property taxes and facing these large property tax bills um, should have more of a reprieve when it comes to to the bond. And their argument is that it the passage of the bond will effectively raise taxes. Um, that's not entirely accurate. Mm-hmm. The, the the backward picture is when you look at it backwardly, if the bond were not to pass, the city would eventually have to decrease um, its property tax rate. So so there was a lot of um, you know, back and forth about the difference between the property tax rate and the increase in property taxes that so many homeowners are feeling right now in the booming housing market. Um, but Gary Teal, 
the uh, leader of the Bear GOP uh, really made the point that if the bond were not to pass, the city would eventually have to decrease that property tax rate. Um, there is a, a portion of the property tax rate is um, entirely dedicated to the city's debt service. Right. So if the city had less debt to pay off, it would eventually be required to decrease that. It could keep the property tax rate the same for now and pay off um, the existing debt faster rather than lower the property tax rate right away. Um, but that is the argument coming from the, the Bear GOP is just that homeowners are, are too burdened right now. And this is a time that the city should look at um, potentially eventually decreasing that property tax rate rather than uh, taking on more debt. Gotcha. I wanted to, to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, another big issue facing the city, which is, is something you've written, uh, done some great pieces on recently, and this is redistricting. And we've had state of Texas um, ch- alter its its uh, congressional district maps, its its legislative maps, and the city of San Antonio is now in the process of of changing its municipal maps. Um, and with, I mean the the big purpose really here is to try to restore balance, population balance um, between the, the council districts, because we've in recent history has been that on the north side, that's where a lot of the growth is happening. And those districts get become very big. And uh, and you have some districts, District 5 on the west side in particular, that tends to be you know, a little, quite a bit smaller than, than the average as far as population goes. So there's the, it's the combination of trying to balance the population of the city while also adhering to, um, you know, the, the 1965 Voting Rights Act and, uh, and, and maintaining, you know, the, the integrity of the districts. And one of the big issues that's come up um, has, has involved the medical center, which is in, in District 8 on the north side. And council member, that's been Councilmember Manny Pelias's district, um, and there's been what seems to be a conflict between Manny Pelias and District Seven Councilmember Ana Sandoval, or at the very least, the appointees that they've uh, that they've selected for the for the committee that's uh, handling redistricting over what's going to happen to the medical center. And he's pretty adamant that he wants to keep the entirety of the medical center within his district. W- what's what's been playing out here, and where do things stand now? So as of right now, the redistricting committee had taken a vote to keep the medical center in District 8. So that is where it is now. I I don't think that's likely to change. Um, The redistricting committee does have its first official draft map that they have approved now. Um, It's it's online for review, and it does keep the medical center in District 8. So um, that was a a battle that uh, District 7 lost. Um, The District 7 appointees... Uh, under Anna Sandoval, we're trying to um, maybe maybe capture a piece of of the medical center, and um, have argued that in, in doing so, it's it's related to to population, um, but also that it's important for District Seven to have an economic driver. Um, whereas uh, District Eight Councilman Manny Pelias and his appointees have have focused on um, this idea that District Seven is trying to sort of steal this economic driver from District Eight, and that the medical center is has too much history with District Eight and is too far aligned with it that it's it's a non negotiable on the table for them. You know, one of the things that that Manny Pelias has argued is that there isn't that much population in the medical center, and that's and as you said, the argument has been that. Uh, Ana Sandoval or District Seven is trying to kind of take something of 
of, of value, a shiny object from District 8, but they're really, it, it really doesn't involve that much population. But one of the things that was really interesting to me is that, you know, you pointed out in, in one of your articles about this, that there are about 39,000 people living in the medical center area. And District 8, I think is, a, what is it, about 26,000 people or so above, um, above the average in, in San Antonio or the, the optimal population. So um, it, it does look as though at least you know, a substantial part of the population they need to shed could at least theoretically come from, from that area. I mean, is that, is that your sense? Yes. I, I think when, when district seven, um, when the appointees were looking, you know, their argument was they're, they're taking population. They're not looking to just draw out the medical center alone and just take it into, to district seven. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of a point and the district eight appointees had, uh, had mentioned this and their sort of speech to, to refuse to give up the medical center pointed to Woodlawn Lake Park and district seven currently. Um, and there was a conversation that the, the committee had at the beginning of their meetings, um, an example map that some of the attorneys had drawn had shown Woodlawn Lake Park being drawn into District 1. And there was immediately a, a, a big outroar about that. Um, and there was not the part of, of Woodlawn Lake that was being moved was almost solely the park, not the population around it. So there was a big discussion around, you know, District 7 needs to keep Woodlawn Lake Park. This is sort of this history and connection to District 7. And this is a non-negotiable for District 7 that they don't lose Woodlawn Lake. And District 8 um, pretty much said, you know, we feel the same way about the medical center. This is this is our this is our gem of District 8 that identifies with District 8 and that we shouldn't lose for that reason. Did, does District 8 was um, did they make an argument about uh, relationships they formed with, you know, within the the South Texas Medical Center and their ability to help them get additional city services, infrastructure improvements, or was it really just a matter of, hey, this is this has been associated with district date for a long time. It should remain that way. At the public meeting, there was not much conversation about how District 8 and its council members in the past may have helped the medical center obtain certain economic mm. development agreements or or what have you. There, there was during public comment some um some neighbors in the medical center area who asked to remain in, in district eight for varying reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there was not, as you say, a much of a discussion from district eight that, you know, we, we have helped this medical center area in X particular way. One of the things that was interesting after you wrote uh, about this, this conflict is that uh, in just in looking back on it and uh, it was, it was interesting to me that Reed Williams, who, uh, represented uh, District 8 from 2009 to 2013, um, was actually uh, in, uh, suggesting, he was the one who actually proposed the idea that that the medical center be split up. And his thinking was that, you know, it, it, that they'll get better representation if, if we if we split it up and have multiple council members representing it. And plus his, the, I think the overriding thing, which this is kind of a hard point to deny, is that we're just seeing a northward shift of the districts because so much population is happening on the north side that council districts are going to have to start moving to the north. And he felt the medical center was part of that. And so I th- he suggested splitting up the medical center between District 8, 7 
district eight, district, district seven and district district one. Um, and for a variety of reasons that didn't happen, but it was, it was something that, that he, he wanted to see happen, but along the same lines, cause this is a, another really interesting, uh, redistricting issue that you've written about, uh, in this similar, similar situation where we're talking about the possibility of, uh, districts moving North, you've had the neighborhood of greater Harmony Hills, which is on the North side. It's been within district nine, um, for a long time. And there's now talk about district one, which is kind of anchored in downtown, but, but stretches North from downtown about it taking on this neighborhood. And it sounds like there's opposition within the neighborhood to have this happen. Um, what's, what are the arguments on, on this issue? Yeah. So the, um, Patty Gibbons, the president of the Greater Harmony Hills Neighborhood Association and some other board members and members of the Neighborhood Association have been very present and very vocal at most of the redistricting committee meetings that they want to to stay in District 9. They, they do not want to move to District 1. Um, they're, they're slightly um, split up now between the two districts, but the, the majority of the neighborhood remains in, in District 9. And so under a proposal from the District 9 committee members, the, the bulk of the neighborhood would move to District 1 and would mostly be reunited. Um, so the committee members see that as a, as a positive. Um, Gibbons and, and others who have shown up to the meeting say that it's not in the interest of Greater Harmony Hills to move to District 1. They've made a lot of comparisons about District 1 being the downtown district and residents there who have uh, different types of concerns than they do. And, and they're worried that a District 1 council member would focus on downtown development and growth and more urban issues, whereas they see their neighborhood as much more suburban. And, and they talked about, um, you know, 60 years ago when the neighborhood was platted, and it's it's just outside of Loop 410 now. And they, they pointed to, at, at that time, there was not much beyond it. There wasn't all of this growth and development and sprawl out towards Loop 1604. So they really feel like they identify more with um, a suburban district and, and had made comments as such. Uh, there, there was some backlash, you know, between some people in District 1. There was someone in Shearer Hills who had commented that District 1 is, you know, a, a beautiful district. It's got its own great neighborhoods and it shouldn't be thought of as, as entirely just this downtown district. So so that's their argument for wanting to, to stay in District 9. And the committee members, the District 9 appointees, have suggested after hearing all of this, moving them to District 1. And, and their main argument for doing that is that the alternative plan proposed um, would have shed some other District 9 neighborhoods into District 1, but but doing so would have reduced the Hispanic voting age population in District 1 uh, in a way that they considered pretty drastic and significant, the committee. And they did not want to do that. They're worried about complying with the Voting Rights Act and um, there is a strong um, Hispanic majority in, in District 1 now that they didn't want to touch. So they felt that they needed to move Greater Harmony Hills. Um, District 9, of course, you know, straight up directly on the north side, uh, on each side um, by District 8 and 10, which are also populous and growing. And they felt that they wanted to give their population to District 1, which is much smaller and needs to gain population, whereas Districts 8 and 10 have to lose population. One of the things that was interesting to me about this was, you know, it had to do with the, the political ramifications because District 9 has been, um, historically has been the most conservative, uh, politically conservative district in the city. But someone pointed out to me that Greater Harmony Hills actually 
voted voted for Joe Biden in 2020, and I believe voted for Beto O'Rourke in 2018. So um, it's it's been maybe somewhat of an outlier. I mean, Patty Gibbons, uh, who you mentioned, has certainly been uh, very involved in the Republican Party in in in, uh, in Bear County. But um, mm-hmm. but it's it might be somewhat of an outlier in District Nine, and it could be interesting to see if removing it, if the big effect of it, uh, or the biggest effect of it, might be that it makes um, District Nine maybe even more conservative. Um, which uh, you've had John Courage there, who's a, who was a lifelong Democrat who sort of broke through and won in District Nine. Um, and has been able to hold on to mm-hmm. that seat, but it, you know it's it's been a challenge for him because you know that we've basically had you know political conservatives in that, and he's I think he's done it by kind of focusing more on constituent services and and clearly not wanting to present himself as a partisan yeah. figure. But uh, I think that could be interesting. And I don't know if the, what the answer will be, but I'm thinking that 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 could be um, an effect that we might want to look for in District Nine. Yeah, absolutely. These are the things that we'll be watching as the uh, draft map is receiving public comment and and up through June when the city council is slated to uh, approve a map. Uh, Well, Gilbert, I was going to say your your, um, comments about Reed Williams last decade had reminded me of this this conversation of splitting up these areas that are economic drivers so that they have a better seat at the table with more city council representation. Um, that was alluded to in in some areas of the city council map this year. Carlton Souls, the District 10 appointee on the redistricting committee, and of course, a former District 10 city councilman as well, had suggested early on the possibility of splitting up downtown into more city council districts, saying that he would feel more comfortable as um, lots of economic development occurs downtown as this money is poured in, that more council members have a seat at the table to represent that area Right now, downtown is mostly represented by District 1 with District 5 um, coming in and taking parts of, of Southtown and, and the area south of downtown. So that discussion was on the table early on, um, doesn't seem to have gone anywhere um, for the most part, but but was considered. Well, I think we're going to wrap things up there. Um, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And um, be, uh, hope everyone out there is doing well. We want to send our thoughts out to former state Senator Leticia Van, Van de Pute, who was um, injured about a week ago um, in, in Orlando, Florida, and is recovering in a San Antonio hospital. And uh, we're sending our thoughts out to her and her family and hoping for a, for a, a, reco- a fast recovery for her. Um, hope everyone's doing well. Take care, and we'll be back with you next week. Thanks.